RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. About a month ago, we got an email from a lady in Mexico saying, I'm about to research opening an insurance museum in Mexico City. Can I come and see your museum? So we had to apologise, say, well, we haven't got one yet. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Reg Brown and he's going to provide us with an update on the Insurance Museum. Reg, of course, needs no introduction. He is a, a lawyer's legend, having been the active underwriter of RE Brown Syndicate 702 for 17 years until the year 2000. However, he's also a friend of the podcast, having been a guest not once, but twice before. A year ago, he talked about the crisis at Lloyd's in the 1980s, which was a truly brilliant episode. Um, but a few months before that, Reg, had been on the podcast to introduce us to the Insurance Museum in London at a time when it was merely a twinkle in Reggie's eye. Since then, a lot has happened and the plans for the Insurance Museum have gathered pace. And that's what we're going to discuss today. So, Reg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. I'm delighted to be back again. Well, it's an absolute pleasure, as it always is, to have you on. Um, Our opening question is... How did you first become involved uh, in the Insurance Museum project? What, what was it that sort of got you on board, as it were? Well, you said it was a twinkling in my eye. Well, I think the twinkle in my eye began when I was mentoring a lot of students. I've done that for, throughout my career and mostly since I've been retired. But I used to take them into Lloyd's uh, for a tour of Lloyd's and then round to the Bank of England Museum. Uh, and the Bank of England Museum was so entertaining and so informative that I used to have to drag them out. And, and I always came out thinking, if the banks have got one, why haven't we got one? We're just as important as the banking industry. Uh, and so um, I was very jealous. Uh, but when I uh, got the message from uh, the Charter Insurance Institute, Sean Fisher, on that 23rd of March, 2018, that we're on the move. We've sold Aldermanbury, which was a building I loved dearly and I've been uh, there all my career. Um, uh, she then said that we've set up a small group under my chairmanship to advise them on what to do with their heritage items. So I didn't have to think twice about it. I said, open a museum, put them in a museum. You mentioned there about the, the Bank of England Museum um, and the fact that it's so good. Uh, I, I just, uh, why, why do you think that there isn't an insurance equivalent? Well, 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 there have been sorts of museums. I mean, the Charter Insurance Institute had its own museum on the second gallery. The public couldn't get in there. It was only open to members of the Charter Insurance Institute, most of which work in other areas of the world. So it was barely used. I mean, Lloyd's uh, had its own Nelson collection and on, on exhibition, but you couldn't get into Lloyd's unless you had a ticket and, and, and a pass. So there have been sort of imitation museums, but not the real thing where the public can get into. Uh, and I guess it's because nobody ever thought of it before. Some people, um, regrettably, may be sort of immediately switched off by the, by the word museum. 
on the basis it creates images of, of dusty quiet places frequented by older people so please help us to visualize what the museum might look like um, as and when it's up and running uh, i too felt the word museum is a bit stuffy and unattractive and and so on but when you think about the science museum and the natural history museum they're far from stuffy places they're, they're fun they're exciting uh, and you know our museum will be fun and exciting and formative so i don't see that our museum is, is going to be a stuffy place yeah and, and i think i've heard you describe it previously as as a world-class visitor and research center in london yes we've changed our descriptor because more recently apart from the heritage items from the Charter insurance institute um, we've been offered the library, the CII's 50,000 item library. So, uh, you know, I see it as not just a museum, but a centre where insurance people and, and the public at large can come along and learn and research about insurance. Um, recently, kind of, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I watched uh, a, a presentation um, that you made to the uh, Insurance Institute of London in which you were providing an update on, on the progress with the Insurance Museum. And, and you asked, and then obviously answered, uh, three questions. Um, why do we need an Insurance Museum? What will it contain? And finally, what will it achieve? What will the museum achieve? So we'll ask those same questions. Um, but so let's start with the first one of those. Why, in your opinion, do we need an Insurance Museum? I think we need to do more. Uh, in insurance to educate the public, indeed to educate our new recruits about the profession they've just joined. So why do we need one? We need one to do more and, and attract youngsters to think of insurance as a career, for example, to explain to the public at large the social good that we do. So that's what I think. That's why I think we need an insurance museum. And um, you've already explained how, how you became involved, but could you talk us through the, I don't know, the first year or two of, of discussions and, and, and the, the, the initial developments, how the initial idea started to become a reality? Well, well the first thing I had to do following Sean Fisher's uh, email to the membership was to create that small group. And uh, I had a few people in mind. So I formed a small group. And fortunately, after a short while, we met Jonathan Squirrel of uh, OB Brand Consulting. And Jonathan was a revelation. Jonathan inspired us with different ideas and so on. So we began to believe that it would happen. We had to raise some initial funding from the Chartered Insurance Institute because we wanted to do a feasibility study, and that needed a bit of finance uh, to go around and see everybody that we thought had an opinion or might have an opinion. I went to see all the trade associations and every man jack of them said, this is a great idea and we support it. We even got a letter of support from the city corporation saying we would like this to happen and it's a great idea uh, and so on. So uh, we completed our feasibility study in 2019 uh, and at that stage, we were going great guns. We were quite excited that this is going to happen. But then COVID happened. <laughs> we had actually identified a sort of a pop-up 
venue in Leadenhall Market, the old HMV store. And it looked like a great venue and a great idea for a pop-up. But then COVID hit. And thank goodness we didn't sign a lease because we'd have had two years paying rent for premises when the city was deserted and nobody could get there anyway, even if they wanted to. So that, that, was, uh, that was the first of the three questions. Why is it that we need a museum? And um, I'm just as an aside, I think I, I, I remember being told once that in London, you can, you can visit a different museum every day of the year. And it's, it's just, well, to put it simply, it's just balmy that there isn't an insurance museum. There isn't one place which can be the focal point for the history of insurance. But anyway, so that, that's the first question. Why do we need a museum? Now for the second question. Uh, and we've already touched upon this a little bit, but I just want to go into a bit more detail. What will it contain? I've already uh, hinted that um, it'll contain the CII's heritage items. Uh, we have those at our disposal. They're currently in store in, in a place called the Stockroom in Woolwich. Um, sorry, sorry, Reg, sorry to interrupt. When you say heritage items, what, what do you mean? Uh, well, uh, they, they had a fabulous Farmark collection. Uh, and, and there are some old fire engines, for example, and some old fire buckets and things that were used to extinguish fires in the early days. And particularly when the fire brigades were actually the insurance company brigades. Uh, and there are some firemen's badges, helmets uh, and truncheons. Because believe it or not, when, when the uh, Royal Exchange Fire Brigade were putting out a fire, they had to have truncheons to keep the public at bay. So um, it was fascinating stories. Uh, so th there are those kinds of things. And, and we should say that all that's necessary because a particular house would be insured by a particular company. They would put their fire mark on the outside of the house. If there was a fire in that house, the insurer's fire engine would come and put out the fire. That there was no... There's no state or city uh, municipal fire fire engines in the early days. So I was... don't know the answer yet as to whether if the Royal Exchange Fire Brigade turned up and saw the sun fire mark on the building, would they fold their arms up and let it burn down? I don't know the answer to that question yet, but uh, I, I suspect not. We also have uh, access to a private collection. There's an old retired insurance broker, a great friend of mine, Brian Sharp, He's got his own personal heritage collection, his own private museum. It would, it's a great collection. So, you know, we have access to that. We know that um, Aviva have got the best collection of heritage items in the country, but in their underground storage in, in Surrey House in Norwich, and we're in touch with the archivist there. And um, Lloyd's itself has always had a wonderful collection a lot of it's gone to the National Maritime Museum. But Lloyd's is beginning to think that it would like to have its items on public display. But the problem is with a listed building and restricted access and security and all of that, how do they get it on display? Well, my answer to them is put it in the Lloyd's room in my museum. <laughs> well, and there's no reason why when we finally get a location and we can design the museum, we shouldn't have a Lloyd's room or an Aviva room or a Prudential room or, or whatever. So those companies, those insurers can put whatever they want 
on display in our museum. And the National Archives have got stuff. The London Metropolitan Archives have got hordes of stuff. Mm. That, you know, they would love to. They've said they'll lend them to us. We'll get them out of the storage and put them on display. And in addition to all the all the items, you already mentioned the CII Library, um, sort of 50,000 books and, and booklets. Do you know what sort of things, you know, is that policies? One of our big questions is, um, do we want old insurance policies? Well, unless they're of a unique historical interest, <laughs> the answer is no. I've got hundreds of the damn things here that my wife keeps saying, give them away and I'm going to give them to the museum. But uh, there's an awful lot of old insurance policies out there that have no real historical interest. Uh, but some are. Nicholas Barbon's first fire policy, for example, very wow. interesting. Or oh, the ABI have got a copy uh, on display in their offices, and uh, we've taken a photograph of that, and we'll be featuring it at some point in time. Wow, I, I, had, I had no idea that that still existed. So just for, you know, just to put that into context for listeners, we had the Great Fire of London um, in 1666, um, and uh, as a result of that, people suddenly realised we ought to insure our houses because most of the, most of the houses destroyed in the Great Fire of London were, were uninsured. And Nicholas Barbon set up, as far as we're aware, the first fire insurance company in the UK. But he, he was first and foremost a property speculator, wasn't he? And he just added in fire insurance as a, you know, a, a, an added bonus. So when we talk about the CII books and booklets, then, if, if we're not talking about old policies other than historically important ones, what, what sort of things are, are we, we talking about then? Well, well, the oldest book they've got there is an Italian uh, book, apparently. Uh, 1500 and something but essentially they're insurance related books some of them are quite old and unique but i mean every copy of post magazine for example since it started publishing in 1840 wow now that's something that the researchers would be interested in getting access to Oh, definitely, definitely. And that there are one or two other insurance museums around uh, Europe and around the globe. So are there plans to sort of link with those as well so that there can be a transfer of information from these museums around the world? Yes, of course. We, we've been in touch with a, a variety of people and, and quite coincidentally, uh, about a month ago, we got an email from a lady in Mexico saying, I'm about to research opening an insurance museum in Mexico City can I come and see your museum? So we had to apologise, say, well, we haven't got one yet. <laughs> but anyway, she came over. We entertained her for a tour of Lloyd's and, and gave her lunch. And, and she's gone back. She's a historian who's researching the idea of opening an insurance museum in Mexico City. So we've given her all the help that we can and uh, we're going to keep in touch. No, well, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. So that's the second question. Um, what will the museum contain? But now for your third question, um, and, and in many ways the most important of, of the three questions, I'd say, which is what will the museum achieve? Because um, in your talk, you quoted Professor Dr Anne Bamford, uh, who said, uh, from its earliest days, insurance has allowed people to extend their frontiers. It underpins much of the public good in society and gives people a sense of safety and well-being, yet little is known about this sector. And presumably part of the vision of the museum is to correct that lack of knowledge. Absolutely. And it's not just 
in the minds of the public. It's in the minds of people joining our profession. And, you know, we do want to educate the public. We want to share the global story of insurance, past, present and future. We obviously want to get in touch with schools, colleges, universities, existing and future policyholders. Every one of the members of the public has got insurance and needs insurance in some way or another. And we want to tell them about the social good that we do. Uh, and I've always said that the, uh, the man from the Prue were the original social workers with his bowler hat and his umbrella, because when he went round to collect his pennies, he was asked all sorts of questions. He became a friend of the family. and He would do his best to look after them. Yeah, I mean, we should put that into a little bit of context there, there Rich. So, so, so the man from the Prue was, what, that goes back to 19th century, early 20th century? Certainly in the 19th century and early 20th century, because, you know, I, I once spoke to somebody from United Friendly, a great friend of mine. I used to know him and they were a, a weekly premium person of the company. Industrial branch insurance is known as. And he used to say to me that we're cheaper than the Prudential. And I say, how does that work? And he said, well, we're a shilling a week. And the Prudential are two shillings a fortnight. <laughs> and I, because he said, our collectors go round weekly. And if they don't collect that shilling, it's spent on another loaf of bread or a bottle of milk. Whereas the Prue go fortnightly, and it's more expensive to get two shillings than a shilling. So it, it may not work mathematically, but you, you sort of see what he's saying. But so, so that was for uh, that sort of weekly payments were predominantly for funeral payments. Yeah, they? life insurance. Life insurance and funeral F benefits. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, it, basically it's an early form of micro insurance, isn't it? Just, just you know, very small payments to provide some level of cover in the event of death. But it, it seems to me that the, the museum, as and when it's uh, kind of, you know, ha has been made flesh, as it were, uh, it's going to work on a number of levels. So you have, uh, first of all, I mean, we just want it to be an enjoyable place for tourists to visit. People who are coming to the city of London, it's a place that, you know, they'll go to the Bank of England Museum and they'll come along to the Insurance Museum. Um, just an enjoyable touristy thing to do. Also, as you've been discussing, it's an educational tool to teach people about insurance, people within and outside the, the profession, to teach them about insurance. But uh, this is the bit that I'm, I'm excited by, really, which is it's also going to act as, as a research centre um, to uh, encourage academic study of insurance. Because, you know, I, I have tried to find various books on insurance, and you can either get books which are very niche, or you can get books which are more general, but very old. Um, and Swiss Re have produced some very good online resources for the history of insurance and whatever. But generally speaking, in the UK, with, with one or two notable exceptions, such as Dr. Adrian Leonard, insurance isn't really studied as an academic subject um, in the UK, or the history of insurance isn't studied. And one of your hopes is, presumably, is that the museum will act as a way of encouraging more academic research into insurance. Certainly. Uh, and, and this is worldwide. You know, there are a number of people who come to London expecting to learn about insurance and research insurance. And at the moment, they've got very few places to go. Uh, and I've been told by academics that if there were uh, such a museum, uh, they would be coming here to do a lot of their research.
And also we hear from HR people that it would be great for the new recruits to take to a museum to show them something about the, the profession they've just joined. Because, I mean, they can start to study uh, the CII exams and things like that. But, but to have a physical museum to start them at in their early career would be a, a great benefit to HR. Absolutely. And at the beginning of this, uh, this episode, we talked about the museum being a world-class research and, and visitor centre. So there's obviously an intention to have a physical building, an actual place that people can visit. What progress has been made with that? And you know, do we have a date for, for when that might be open to visitors? Well, well we're keeping an eye on the uh, city property marketplace. Uh, it's a very uncertain marketplace, but we have throughout been in touch with a developer who's got planning consent on a building in, in Lenlaw Street. And the idea is that we have the fifth floor, which is a 20,000 square feet. But there's a long time to go, and that building is not expected to be finished until 2028. In the meantime, we're going back to the idea of a pop-up museum, and we've noticed there are one or two empty spaces in and around Lednall Market. And we may well return to Lednall Market and uh, open up a pop-up museum to get us started and to learn how a museum operates uh, and to see what the public want to hear about. Exactly. Well, that, that, that's very exciting. So, so when I appreciate that you can't give any deadlines, but you, what you think that might be within the next couple of years, there might be some form of pop-up. Well, I, I, th I think, you know, we're, we're going to start actively looking for a pop-up site, you, you know, two or 3,000 square feet at, at most, to just get started uh, and see how we get on. And what other developments have there been in kind of the last year or so since, since our first podcast? Well, we, we haven't been idle during the uh, two years of lockdown. Uh, and um, one of the things we've been doing is to create a virtual museum uh, and a virtual fire gallery, starting with a fire gallery in the virtual museum. Uh, it's been delayed, but we hope to uh, have it up and running in September, as I say, to coincide with the anniversary of the Great Fire of London. We have a little fire game for the great fire game for youngsters to play uh, and try and extinguish the fire. And if they succeed, they get an award and, and so on. So we are rising from our slumber. Uh, we may well be participating in an event in uh, Lednall Market in July. And we may be getting sponsors for our virtual motor gallery, virtual marine gallery, virtual uh, cyber gallery, and, and, and so on. And, and how's, the, how's the Board of Trustees going? I, I, I hear that LinkedIn impresario Paul Miller um, has recently been appointed. Yes, we're getting a lot of um, social media exposure. Uh, our newsletter has just come out, and people are sending us emails saying, can I join, how do I help, and so on. We're looking for volunteers. We certainly could do with a, a retired insurance chartered accountant, for example, to help us look after our finances and do our tax returns and all sorts of stuff like that. So, you know, we're appealing for volunteers and we're getting quite a number. Excellent. And uh, obviously money is required as well. So how much money will the museum need and, and how are you going to go about obtaining that money? 
Well, we started looking for about three million pounds, which was based on the annual cost of the Bank of England Museum. So I use that as my role model. But until we get a physical location of our own, it's impossible to put a business plan together uh, and a proper costing together to know how much it's going to cost. But that's a starting point. Uh, and I've always said that we will only succeed if we get the support of the big insurers. When you think of how much they spend on advertising, I mean, three million is a drop in the ocean for them. And um, I did a calculation based on ABI figures that three million is 0.00014% of the market's gross premium income. Now, that's a tiny drop in the ocean. So the message I would want to get across to chief executives, and we need a community of visionary chief executives who can see the benefits of this museum, how many other opportunities are there to tick all the three R boxes? What I mean by that is PR, CSR, and HR. The museum ticks all those boxes. So why can't you find a few pence to support it? And uh, it could even tick the ESG box um, as well. You know, having kind of uh, talk about how insurance can help the future and help transition to, to net zero and whatever. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it ticks every box is, is the reality of it. it. It's an essential thing. Uh, so that's talking about corporate sponsorship and corporate investment. But my understanding is you're going to have a, a membership scheme as well. We're going to have a membership scheme. We've already had a lot of money from individual supporters. We've had money from the Guernsey reinsurance community, captive community in Guernsey. Uh, and we've had money from here, there and everywhere. Individuals giving us money. Individuals reading about it and saying, uh, can I donate? Uh, and there's a facility at the moment for, for them to donate. But we want to develop a, an individual membership scheme so that, for example, the 120-odd thousand members of the Chartered Insurance Institute can become members of the museum you know, £10 a head from them would give us £1.2 million. So that would be rather nice. Reg, that's been um, illuminating, um, as always. And it's such an important, you know, in, in my opinion, it is such an important project for the insurance industry, for the city uh, and for London as a whole. It, it, insurance plays such a vital role in society. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's a brilliant project and I, I wish you all the very, very best for it. But, but finally, Reg, going slightly onto a different topic, but in your very first podcast with us, you mentioned that uh, you, didn't, you, know, you didn't do so brilliantly academically um, at school, um, but yet you have gone on to this hugely successful career as an underwriter and you're now a chairman of the Insurance Museum. So what skills do you think you had that enabled you to succeed and i suppose do you think those skills are still important for people today well, well i think uh, after about two or three years as a junior clerk in cannon street in an insurance company i, I began to realize that you know uh, you had to put something in to your job and you had to become better at it and you had to educate yourself about it so i took the cii exams and the more I, I began to learn, the more I appreciated it. And I got to a point at the age of about 
25 when I was a fellow of the Chartered Insurance Institute. I'd almost become a professional student. So that's when I went on and did a law degree as an external student at London University. I never thought I'd be able to do that, but I did self-teach myself law and I got a law degree. So I began to enjoy working in insurance. I worked hard at it. I was determined to get somewhere. Uh, Every failure during my exams encouraged me to work hard and not give up. And um, I think I began to enjoy it. And I always tell my students these days, if you think of your average day, one third, eight hours sleep, you get eight hours at work and eight hours at play, if you're lucky. So that means if you don't enjoy your job, half of your waking hours you're not enjoying. And I think that's a sad, (laughs) sad position to be in. And the only Monday morning feeling I ever had is, whoopee, it's Monday. I've got the whole week to look forward to. Whereas other mates of mine would say, oh, bloody Monday. I don't, I've got to go to work. It's Monday. Well, I always enjoyed going to work. And, and so I felt I'm one of the lucky ones. Bedge, that was, as always, absolutely brilliant. And I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.